0: guys. Good morning. Nice to be with you all. I'm Austin. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here at Branches. and Sometimes I dip into main service as well. Always great to be with you. I had the craziest thing happen this past Thursday. I went to my friend's house. I put on a VR headset and I entered the metaverse. And it was wild, guys. Like one moment, I'm up in this cabin in the top of the mountains, these snow-capped mountains around me. I'm playing ping pong. Easy level, but I'm playing ping pong. Like I tried expert and then really quickly just went to easy. I'm like, I'm not even gonna try medium. Went to easy, playing ping pong. Next moment, I'm in what looks like the Death Star from Star Wars, and I'm just like shooting these like boxes flying all over. And then I had an opportunity to just like throw these paper airplanes, which seems like the most menial of them all, but I threw like 30. I was like, this is so cool, this is insane. And you see this rule at my friend's house when someone has the VR headset on is you don't mess with them. You don't push them, you don't punch them, you don't do anything to them. Why? Because they are totally vulnerable, right? Like you can imagine that everything they can see, their peripherals, it's all within this virtual reality. They are unable to see reality around them. They're in a totally different mindset. And similarly, when we get caught up in the ways of the world, we're totally vulnerable. We're totally out of place and are able to be attacked by the enemy, caught off guard, unable to defend ourselves, helpless. And this is what happens when pride sinks into our faith as well. We become spiritually blind. We have this spiritual VR headset on and we're left vulnerable, unable to counter the attacks of the enemy, unable to notice how Satan may sneak into not only our worldview, but our faith, making slight altercations, slightly twisting the truth. And so today, we're going to go to God's word to get his kingdom vision, to have eyes to see as we see the world around us through the eyes of Christ. Let's go to God's word. This is going to be out of Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. If you want to flip there, the words will also be up on the screen. There's an usher that's passing around Bibles. If you would like one, you can raise a hand. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered. We want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, as we go into your word, may you give us the humility to see life, our present circumstances, and everyone around us through your sight, your perspective, and your grace. Amen. So the ascent to Jerusalem has begun, which means Jesus is on his way to the cross. And Jesus is fully aware of what this entails for him, on his way to Jerusalem. But his disciples, they could not be less aware, even after having heard for the third time Jesus' prediction of his coming death. Reason being... The disciples saw Jesus more as this political type of figure, like he's heading to Jerusalem to overthrow the strongholds of Rome. He's heading there to reclaim Israel, sitting on their throne as their rightful king. Little did they know, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die to overthrow the strongholds of hell, taking away the keys of death, that those who receive his mercy may never know death, but live on forevermore in his kingdom. But that's not what the disciples are thinking. Even after Jesus very clearly describes what's going to happen, they're going to condemn him to death. He will be mocked, flogged, crucified, and on the third day, raised to life fully over their heads. It's kind of like me with multitasking while my wife is trying to talk to me. It's like, there's this time I'm in deep concentration with cooking or cleaning, but especially driving. I don't know what it is when I'm driving and I'm in like a weird situation, like trying to get out of a parking spot or turn this way or that. But when my wife Kara starts talking to me, nothing. I don't hear a word she says. Like I'm like making this turn and she says something to me. And I respond, and then I look at her, then she looks at me, and then she keeps looking at me. I'm like, "Yeah, I have no idea what you just said." She's like, "I know, I know Austin." And similarly, the disciples, they hear Jesus' words, but their minds are elsewhere, like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. We heard you the first two times Jesus." We get it. This is like an analogy or a parable or something. Third day, rise, you're going to claim the throne. We get it. It's like they have selective hearing. When Jesus says something about grace or love, they're all ears. But when he says something about torture and death, it falls on deaf ears. But what Jesus is trying to express is the thing most necessary for the ultimate act of love and grace to take place humility. He's trying to hammer into their minds godly humility. Jesus who is the king of kings, lord of lords, he's going to lay his life down. He who is powerful beyond all worldly standards, he's going to die. The disciples' reaction, let me sit on your throne, Jesus. You see the text, it takes a hard turn. And I believe it's intentional, like it seems comical as you're reading through this chapter. Like blowing any concept of humility out of water, the mother of Zebedee's sons asks Jesus of a favor. What is it you want? Jesus asks. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. The left and right hand suggest proximity to the king's person, and so share in his prestige, share in his power. The disciples are clout chasers. That's what they're doing right now. Essentially, grant my son seats of power once you overthrow Rome, which is operating antithetically to Jesus' call toward humility. And we might think it's strange. Why is the mother asking on behalf of her son's? Aren't they like grown men? Why are they bringing their mother into this? But the mother of Zebedee's sons was a regular member of the disciple group who accompanied Jesus on his missional journey. So it wasn't too surprising that she was invested in her son's ambitious ideas. She was in a way using her status, her closeness to Jesus to ask this favor for these positions of power for her two sons. But even with that, she too fully misses the I- idea of the mode of the kingdom. Humility. It's not about gaining power, but the laying down of power. And it's so far beyond what they are able to grasp. And so Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Two disciples are, like, standing behind their mom all chipper, like, we can. We can do this, Jesus. You see, this reckless abandonment without truly recognizing the assignment, they don't know what they're signing themselves up for. They probably hear the metaphor of the cup and think both adversity and blessing. Like, we're ready to endure any hardships, Jesus, for the reward of glory that lies ahead. They don't know what they're signing themselves up for. The way of Jesus is come and die. But they're thinking it's more like come and dine at the table, dine at the feast, dine and receive glory and honor. We see the disciples have a type of spiritual blindness, not able to grasp what Jesus has been instructing them, leading them in for the last three years. So Jesus says, verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And later it is revealed, they do drink the cup as James becomes the first martyr of the church. And John is persecuted and later exiled. Now word gets around about this little exchange. The other disciples hear about how those two brothers brought their mom into the mix started asking Jesus of favors and they become indignant they're baffled like the audacity the nerve the I can't believe you guys got to ask Jesus that before we did you see a few chapters ago the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest now it seems like these two disciples are pulling a fast one Again, bringing their mother into it. That's low. Come on. And they are indignant as a result. And we might see this power grabbing as repulsive, like, you guys are supposed to be Jesus's guys. You're his disciples. You've been with him long enough. Shouldn't you be like him? But this attitude remains prevalent for us today. For an Orange County, we're obsessed with association with greatness, whose photos were being tagged in who's endorsing us on LinkedIn, whose parties we're being invited to, whose numbers we have. I can get you this person's signature. Oh, you like this team? I can get you tickets. Name drops left and right. In our culture, we're obsessed with greatness, with status, but in the way of Jesus, that's irrelevant, as greatness is defined by service. Power is defined in the laying down of power. So at this time, Jesus takes the opportunity to define power in his kingdom under his rule, under his reign. Jesus declares, in this world, people will lord power over others. They will exercise authority over others. You've seen it happen, Jesus implies. You've experienced it yourselves. You see, greatness amongst the Gentiles was measured in a power to lord it over others, exercise authority over others. A person who is a ruler or a high official can do whatever he wants, using whoever to serve their needs. At this moment, Jesus, the disciples are probably thinking about how the Roman occupation was over Israel and the people of Israel have been suffering for decades, and how people of Israel, they would try to acquire power positions for authority, for respect, but that's not what Jesus has in mind for his disciples So Jesus says these four powerful words, not so with you. Not so with you. Here's where Jesus chooses to make his people distinct, make them set apart, which is the definition of holiness, being set apart from the ways of the world, not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says in verse 26, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Do you want to become great disciples? Be a servant. Go down on your knees in humility. Do you want to become first? Take a low authority position. Why? Because just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to this earth for power. He came to lay power down. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2:6. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus, from the moment of his birth in a feeding trough, where animals would literally eat from, to his death on the cross, the most humiliating, the most despised, the most painful way to die from beginning to end to resurrection, Jesus operated from humility. He laid down his life as a ransom for many, laying down his life for his disciples who don't get it, the Gentiles who sought power for power's sake, and even for the Romans who had used their power to hang him. Jesus laid down his life for all people, even those who would kill him, that all may have the opportunity to receive his grace, whether they receive it or not. That is the humility of Christ. Jesus demonstrates true power in the kingdom is not in ruling. True power in the kingdom is in serving. It's in the laying down of one's preferences as Jesus did all the way to the cross. This requires humility for us all. Continuing on with the text, Jesus and his disciples are now leaving Jericho and they're on the way to to Jerusalem, and large crowds are following him. Like, this is our guy, this is our leader. Jesus, he's going to overthrow Rome. This is a time the disciples are thinking, this is some good PR for our man Jesus. Let's hype Jesus up. Let's grow in power. Let's get ready to overthrow Rome. The crowd might have been giving Jesus all types of titles, but where does Jesus' attention land? The two blind men sitting on the roadside where dust was being kicked up from the large crowd walking. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebukes them. The crowd looks down on the sitting blind men like be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. Can't you see we're going somewhere? Can't you tell how important he is? How dare you interrupt him? And they shout louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus halts, calls over to them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them. He touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. They were no longer sitting on the roadside. They had humbled themselves in begging of him. They had humbled themselves and called him out to be consistent with his name, Lord, Son of David. And Jesus, he exalted them. He lifted them up. And the formerly blind men became perhaps the only ones in the crowd who could see. For the blind men realized their blindness... The disciples did not. While pride can blind us, humility gives us kingdom vision. As humility is the way of the kingdom, humility is the operation mode of the kingdom. It's the power it runs on. It's how it advances. Truly, pride has no room in the kingdom hard stop. Pride is off-brand from the kingdom. Do not let it take hold of you. We receive the grace of Jesus with humility, and then we walk it out with humility. Don't let pride take root in your heart. And if it has, you're not out of the game. Come to Jesus that he may uproot it, and uproot it again, and uproot it again Come to the loving arms of our Savior, whose arms have never ceased to be opened wide to us since they were spread wide on the cross. Amen. We should all be seeking to live humbly, for that is the only way we can receive that which we could never earn nor deserve, the grace of Christ. You see, the blind men answer the question Jesus already knows the answer to. What is it you want? Seems kind of funny, Right? Like, God is all-knowing, so why does he ask? Is he messing with them? Like, obviously, you know what we want, Jesus, but that's not the case. You see, God desires us to take the posture of humility and ask of him. Jesus, God, Jesus, yeah, both, desires us to take the posture of humility and ask of him. Similar to what C.S. Lewis writes in book one of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew. I'm going to give you the lay of the land. The book is 67 years old, so you guys can't be mad at me for spoilers. It's like 200 pages with pictures, like could have read it by now. Do not get mad at me. Spoilers are happening. Aslan, the lion and the creator and ruler of Narnia, sends the two main characters in the book on this final mission. Their names are Diggory and Polly. They need to go get this apple from the tree of youth and bring it back to Aslan. And while they're on this mission, the kids have a funny dialogue with this horse named Fledge as they're on the ride to the tree of youth. And it's nighttime, the kids haven't eaten all day, so the kids are famished. They're getting hungry. The book reads, I am hungry, says Diggory. Well, tuck in, says Fledge, taking a big mouthful of grass. Come on, you two, don't be shy. There's plenty for us all. But we can't eat grass, said Diggory. Hm, hmm, said Fledge, speaking with his mouth full. Well, hmm. I don't know quite what you'll do. Very good grass, too. Polly and Diggory stared at one another in dismay. Well, I do think someone might have arranged our meals, said Diggory. I'm sure Aslan would have if you asked him, said Fledge. Wouldn't he know without being asked, said Polly? I have no doubt he would, said the horse, still with his mouth full. But I have a sort of idea he likes to be asked. But I have a sort of idea he likes to be asked. And in the same way... Our Heavenly Father knows our needs well before we know our own needs. And once we discover them, He desires us to ask of Him, bring them to Him, come before Him in a posture of humility, of a child. Father, can you do this for me? Can you help me? Theologian Timothy Keller once said this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child, we have that kind of access. This is the relationship we have with our Heavenly Father, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We just need to take that posture of humility. This is what we see the blind men do. Jesus asks them what they want him to do, though he already knows. He's desiring them to ask of him. Come before him with humility that he may exalt them. The disciple Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that he may lift you up in due time. For in God's kingdom, humility precedes exaltation. We must humble ourselves before we are lifted up by the Father. And you see with today's text, there's kind of a funny correlation between the two stories. The mother's request and the blind man's request. The mother desires power from Jesus while the blind men declare, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The mother and the disciples wanted power while the two blind men wanted mercy, proving how much more powerful spiritual blindness is than physical blindness. For while pride can blind us, Humility gives us sight, gives us the eyes to see the way of the kingdom. And this is what we are all welcomed into in the way of Jesus. Through humility, we receive grace, which is when we receive what we don't deserve. And we receive mercy, which is when we don't receive what we do deserve. It takes humility to receive the grace and mercy of God. So where do we go from here? To the feet of Jesus, again, again, and again. There are no professional Christians. There are no elite disciples, only those who in their weakness discover the power of Jesus. And their humility are exalted by the Father for humility precedes exaltation. Brothers and sisters, may we live to be vessels that the power of God works through. So we take postures of humility, taking the posture of a servant that we may be Christ's hands and feet wherever we go as we are empowered by his Holy Spirit within us. So find places to serve. There are so many opportunities to step into serving at branches. And on top of that, we have a ton of parachurch organizations that we are in relation with, with Common Ground, Young Lives, Voice of Refugees. It goes on and on for days, which I love about branches. There's so many parachurch organizations making God's kingdom come in Orange County as it is in heaven. Hallelujah, holla back. But all this to say, we're to operate from humility and be a servant of Jesus. May we not allow pride to take root in our hearts and give us spiritual blindness. Rather, may we with humility have eyes to see Christ's kingdom mission, amen? amen. Will you stand with me as we go into this time of response? So King Jesus, we look to you because you are worthy, because you are holy, because you did that which we could have never done on our own. You redeemed our souls. You freed us from the bondage of sin. You stole the keys of death that we may never know death. We thank you, Lord, that your grace that we receive was freely given. We don't need to live for your grace, but because you gave it to us freely, we get to live from your grace. May this propel us into a posture of humility as we go into this time of response of worship through song. Jesus, as we reflect on all that you've done on our behalf and continue to do, we worship you. We come before you at your feet and declare you are king and praise you for the access we have to you. For your nearness, Jesus. You couldn't be closer to us than you are right now, all by your grace, we worship you.